Hi, Ghastly Ghouls. I'm your host, Devin. And I'm Lee. And welcome to Ghastly. guys we have a really exciting announcement which is that this week we hit 1000 listens and downloads on our podcast yep it was just like it was yesterday that we hit 100 seriously i mean we <laughs> released the podcast like just a little over a month ago and so we're really excited that this many people have listened and never thought that this quickly we would get to a thousand listens and they can tolerate my voice that's kind of crazy and mine you have a beautiful voice Thank you. I have been very surprised by how many people have specifically commented that I have a good voice for podcasting because I cringe when I edit the episodes. So thanks for (laughs) thinking that, guys. I appreciate it. And what's new with you, Devin? Well, we went to the Star Wars Symphony here in Nashville. That was a lot of fun. Got to go down there and get all dressed up and listen to some Star Wars music. That was cool. If you have a Star Wars Symphony in your local town or city... Definitely recommend going to it. Speaking of Star Wars and the Death Star, we're going to be talking about a death today. (laughs) Devin, today's case was actually recommended by none other than your mother. My mom? It must be the one then. If you're local to Nashville or lived in the general southeast in the late 70s, you will likely be familiar with this case. Devin, your mom said that she was just a few years younger than the victim when this crime occurred, so it was really freaky to be living in the city, feeling like a brutal monster and pedophile could be around any corner. Sounds terrifying to me. It does. But let's hop in. Like I said, this story takes place in Nashville, Tennessee back in the 1970s. Both of my parents and Devin's parents grew up here in the 70s. It's a beautiful city that experiences all four seasons, has rolling green hills, lots of lakes and rivers, and mainly is known as Music City, where hordes of musicians have traveled for a chance to become music legends throughout the years and decades. Like any city, there were crime-ridden areas that people avoided like the plague, and there were affluent, wealthy areas where people felt safe and secure. And the area of Nashville called Green Hills has always been a nice area. And back in the 1970s, it was a safe place to raise a family. And now it's gotten super wealthy to where I feel like a normal sized home is like $4 million to live in that area. That's the old money side of town. So in 1975, the Trimble family is living in the nice area of Green Hills in a three bedroom red brick home on Copeland Drive. Their home is right next to Harpeth Hall, which is a private, prestigious all-girls school. The Trimble family consists of Charlie, the husband and father, who's a Vanderbilt graduate and works in industrial sales. And then we have Virginia, the wife and mother, who's a kindergarten teacher. They do live in a nice, safe area, but the Trimbles are not, like, filthy rich or anything. They're pretty well off with a stable life and a nice area, which is all you could want or ask for. In addition to Charlie and Virginia, they have two children. Their son is named Chuck, and he's a few years older than their daughter, Marcia. 
and these two kids are close. When they get in occasional trouble and get sent to their rooms, Marsha will write messages and sneak over to Chuck's room to deliver them under his door. Just cute sibling stuff like that. They love roller skating, watching Little House on the Prairie, and snacking on powdered donuts and fruits together. And at the time of this story, in 1975, Marsha is nine years old in the fourth grade, and she's four feet, 10 inches tall, or 147 centimeters. So this young girl, Marsha, is generally shy, but she opens up around friends to be goofy, fun, quirky, and interesting. This is what they all described her as. And also really smart. She was described as really intelligent. And then when she gets comfortable around people, and especially family, she's known to be full of energy and talks all the time, almost nonstop. And when she's not verbally speaking, she's busy with her imagination, just writing stories and drawing pictures in her room. And then in addition to school, Marsha's also a Girl Scout who's tasked with selling those legendary delicious cookies that we all know and love. Thin mints and Samoas, baby. Nah, just Samoas. Thin mints are gross. So the exact date is February 25th, 1975, a Tuesday. Charlie Trimble is home from work hanging out in the den, and Virginia is cooking dinner after also working that day. Marsha is inside the home while her brother Chuck has a friend over to play basketball in their driveway. When dinner is close to being ready, Marsha lets her mom know that she needs to run to their neighbor Marie Maxwell's house, which is almost directly across the street from the Trimble home. What does she need to borrow a cup of sugar? She actually has to give her some sugar because she ordered Girl Scout cookies. Oh, okay. And she just needed to drop them off to Marie. Virginia tells Marsha that she needs to put on a coat, but Marsha runs out the back door saying she doesn't need one because she's going to be right back. Marie's house is right across the street. Sometime between 5.15 and 5.25 p.m. is when Marsha leaves the home wearing a white and navy checkered shirt, blue jeans, white socks, and black boots, carrying a cardboard box full of Girl Scout cookies and an envelope with $20 in it from cookie sales. As she runs out of her house and over to Marie's house, her brother Chuck and his friend ask her to play some basketball with them, specifically horse, but she is on a mission and she says no right now. The neighbor Marie, who ordered the cookies, pulls into her driveway around this time and starts unloading groceries from the store because she had been grocery shopping. She hasn't spoken to Marsha yet, but she does recall seeing Marsha actually in her neighbor's driveway directly next door. And Marsha is holding a box of cookies and speaking to two people who she thinks are kids. So one of these kids is bigger than Marsha and the other is smaller than her. And Marie, who's unloading her groceries, is like 99% sure that the smaller of the kids speaking to her is actually the friend who was playing basketball with her brother Chuck. And then Marie is unsure exactly who the taller kid is because she's seeing the kids through like a thick hedge that separates her yard from the neighbor's driveway. But she thinks that maybe the taller kid is one named Jeffrey Womack, who lives in the neighborhood with them, but she's unsure. Marie assumes Marsha is about to come over to her house and drop off the cookies and collect her money once she's done talking with her friends. So once Marie is done bringing her groceries in, she goes in the house and she writes a check for the cookies and waits for Marsha to come to the door. But strangely, Marsha never comes to Marie's door with the cookies, ever. Marsha never comes home for dinner. Virginia, her mother, is yelling Marsha's name in the front yard, telling her dinner's ready, and hears no response. So she goes through the house, tries the backyard, still no sign of Marsha. 
The Trimble family also has two dogs named Princess and Popcorn that usually follow the kids around outside. Those are really cute names. Yeah, they're very different. And these dogs that typically follow the kids around were strangely across the street, not in the Trimble's yard where they usually were. Remember, Marsha left the home around 5.15, 5.25, and by the time 7 p.m. rolls around, the family is really worried. And keep in mind, this is February, so the sun has already set by now for mm. hours. Yeah. Thankfully, Marsha's father, Charlie, has a friend who's a police detective named Sherman Nickens, so he calls to ask his advice on what to do where Sherman tells him to, at this point, cruise through the neighborhood in his car to search for Marsha and yell her name, thinking that maybe she just got lost and doesn't know where she is. Her parents try this technique to no avail. Marsha is nowhere to be seen in the neighborhood. Like I said, the sun is set at this point, and Marsha is very aware that she needed to be home hours earlier for dinner, meaning that something ominous very well may have happened here. And this is when it becomes very serious, and Detective Sherman Nickens and other officers come to assist at this point. It's important to understand this area, Green Hills, is not an area where kidnappings happen, or where people get murdered, or anything suspicious takes place, really. So this situation gained really hefty attention very quickly. I bet it did. That's wild. So more and more police and search teams are called to the Trimble home by about 9 p.m., Along with search teams comes news reporters, too. And actually, fun fact, Oprah Winfrey is one of the first to Oprah. arrive. The Oprah. The Oprah Winfrey is one you of the- You get a search team, and you get a search team, and you, you get, get a-, a search team. And that's what happened here. <laughs> that's good. <clears throat> she is one of the first to arrive on the scene back when she was a reporter for WTVF Channel 5 before she had her own show. But Virginia is worried sick at her house and turns down any interviews with any news reporters, including Oprah's. But regardless, news of young nine-year-old Marsha's disappearance is spreading like wildfire and being aired on the news just hours after her disappearance. Search teams consist of a helicopter flying throughout the area, shining their bright light everywhere trying to find her. Highway reserve officers, civil defense unit members, and police officers searching through the neighborhood with flashlights and megaphones, trying to find Marsha. And because Marsha has only been missing a few hours, some people are optimistic that she'll be found safe and sound. They think maybe she was upset with her parents or her brother and ran off to vent steam and then got lost once the sun set, or she wandered off and lost track of time, maybe trying to sell cookies or trying to find someone's house. But other people, like her parents and some members of the search party, already have a bad gut feeling about this. Just this primal instinct that tells them that they'll have to face a really dark reality. Officers are knocking on all the doors in the neighborhood to find out whether there have been any sightings of Marsha. And a few people actually had seen her, up to a certain point. Keep in mind, she had left her house between 5.15 and 5.25, which is where the neighbor Marie saw her speaking with two kids in her neighbor's driveway, which would have been across the street diagonally from Marsha's home. Someone else told police that a little after 5.30 p.m., they saw a young girl who looked like Marsha about a quarter of a mile up the road from her home, and this girl did not have a box of cookies with her. Another person said they saw her even farther up the same street a few minutes later, also without a box of cookies and looking a little bit confused and disoriented near a tree nursery. 
Some neighbors also tell police about a white 1950s model Chevy driving down the street around the time of Marsha's disappearance. And police are actually able to track down the man based on the car and the description of him, which was that he had a bushy head of hair and a huge nose. Hmm, okay. But after extensive questioning and investigating, they conclude that he's completely uninvolved and was just in the area for his career as a music promoter. Next, some neighborhood kids report to police that Marsha was seen with a 15-year-old boy Ooh. who lives in their neighborhood. How named... old is Marsha? She's nine. She's nine, okay. Yeah, so she was reported to be seen with this 15-year-old boy named Jeffrey Womack, which is one of the kids that lives on the same street, and that she was at his house to try to sell him some cookies. And this is actually the boy that um, Marie, who she was going to sell the cookies to, Marie thought that the older boy in the driveway next to her might have been this kid. Gotcha. So, of course, cops want to speak with Jeffrey. He's not at his home, but wherever Jeffrey is, he hears through the grapevine that police want to speak with him, which freaks him out. So he walks straight over to the Trimble house around 10 p.m. to speak with them. He explains that he actually has been searching around for her since news came out that she's been missing because it spread like wildfire through their street and through their area. And Jeffrey said that he actually had been searching for her at a local quarry. He also says that Marsha did actually try to sell him cookies at his home, but he told her that he didn't have enough money and he sent her away. Then he says around 5.30 to 6 p.m., he shows up to his neighbor Peggy's home to help her babysit. Keep in mind, they live on the same street as Marsha's family, just a few houses south. Apparently, this woman Peggy runs a daycare in her home, and she was known to ask her teen neighbor Jeffrey Womack to help her babysit the kids at night sometimes. So that's what he tells police that he was doing that night when Marsha went missing. Then Peggy herself walks to the Trimble home right after police finish up their interview with Jeffrey. And she explains to them that he was in fact at her home helping babysit during the time that Marsha vanished. But Peggy did have one interesting detail to note about Jeffrey. She said that when he showed up to her house to help babysit, he was sweating really strongly and super hot, which was really odd for February. And then he explained this away by saying that he had worked up a sweat from playing basketball after he got home from school. And as police look into things, it turns out that Jeffrey took over babysitting the kids at her house as Peggy actually went bowling for a while. So really, she couldn't confirm that he was at her house the entire time because she was bowling. So this is weird to them. Police think she's being oddly protective of him, especially considering she couldn't really even account for him when she was gone. And then a few more details that make police mistrusting of Jeffrey Womack is that, one, the words fuck you are written on his shoes, making police think that he's just generally a degenerate. And, you know, for the time in the 70s, they're like, wow, this profanity is profound. Yeah. And two, Jeffrey has an unused condom in his pocket. And three, police discover Jeffrey has been having an affair with a local 30-something-year-old woman, which makes them think that he's just more of a degenerate and also a sexual deviant. Wow. He's sus. But as suspicious as he may seem... This night, they let him go and they continue the search for Marsha in hopes that she'll show up, that she's just in someone's house or something like that. Did they uh, arrest the 30-year-old? 
No, but they should have because <laughs> that 30-year-old was a sexual deviant, yeah. not the 15-year-old. At this point, the Trimble family is praying for God to take care of Marsha wherever she is. The FBI is also called in to start investigating the disappearance as well, so this is getting huge. Police set up basically a whole second police station at the Trimble home. Like, they are drilling holes through the walls for their own phone lines, setting up in the parents' bedroom, and sending out special police search dogs from their home that were imported from Pennsylvania to sniff the area for Marsha's scent. Additionally, lie detector tests are being performed on Charlie and Virginia Trimble just to cover all bases, and they were fully cooperative with everything. They answered all questions without hesitation. They never considered a lawyer. They let police set up in their home. Sadly, people in the community still were really suspicious of her parents, but police had no reason to be. Every door in the neighborhood is being knocked on, asking neighbors to check every corner of their home, their attics, garages, basements, crawl spaces, anywhere for Marsha. But as hours pass and late Tuesday turns into early hours of Wednesday, the realization is setting in that something sinister has happened to the sweet young Girl Scout. Police and people in the area take this very seriously because the news is alarming. This is Green Hills. This is a wealthy area. And part of the appeal of a luxurious area is the safety that's supposed to come with it. Now, nobody feels safe letting their kids out. And in the 70s, it's basically protocol for kids to get to come home from school and play outside and run around until dinner time or until sunset. But no parent wants to let their kids out now. No Girl Scouts can go out and sell cookies without tremendous fear of an abductor. And so the Trimble family partners up with the Nashville Banner and some local banks to put up a $20,000 reward for any information leading to Marsha's recovery. And then the governor, Ray Blanton, added an additional $10,000 to this for a total of $30,000 for any tips leading to her recovery. Unfortunately, this much attention is not what this case needs. Having multiple police units closely involved in the case sparks issues in communication and command structure. And in the late 1970s, they're not walking around with cell phones. They're not able to share information on computers via email or via some shared system or portal because computers and internet don't exist. So some police units are keeping information from other units, whether intentional or unintentional, we don't know. And there are some turf wars going on. Eventually, they get their crap together, but it takes some time. And in addition to so many police, there are an abundance of news reporters and just general local onlookers who just want to come watch the panic for messed up entertainment. Because the news is so huge in Nashville, sightings of Marsha are reported at local parks. People are reporting that their neighbors that they've been feuding with are holding Marsha hostage just out of spite. And people are even claiming to spot her at the U.S. border. Police check all of these leads out, but none turn out to be true, and they continue to search tons of areas around Nashville, door-to-door, -door, with dogs and helicopters to no avail. They cannot find Marsha Trimble anywhere. Then we fast forward to Easter Sunday of the same year, which is March 30th, 1975. 33 days after Marsha was last seen alive, and also importantly, the day that should be Marsha's 10th birthday. A man named Harry Moffat is on his relative's property on Copeland Drive, which is the road where the Trimbles live. It's 11 a.m., 
and this man named Harry is looking around his relative's property, specifically around an old, decrepit, rotting, windowless garage in the back of the property, and he's searching specifically for a boat engine cover. As he moves some clutter around to find this cover, he finds two legs underneath a shower curtain and an old children's wading pool. This is on the same street. They couldn't find it. They have all these dogs, all these 27,000 search parties, helicopters. Dogs, Oprah, and you can't find a body on the same street. Come on now. Makes me question those Pennsylvania search dogs. Don't get your search dogs from Pennsylvania. They're not as good as I thought they were. So this man hopes with all his heart that this is a doll or a mannequin, but he runs to his relative's home and brings them over to inspect the legs with him. They poke the legs, confirming their biggest fear, this is a corpse. This is a little girl's corpse. Under clutter by a rotting barn, only 200 yards away from the Trimble home. That's what I'm saying. It's so close. Police are called immediately, and on what would have been Marsha Trimble's 10th birthday, the corpse is confirmed to be Marsha, and she is confirmed to be a murder victim. Well, now we got sweaty boy. That makes sense why he was so sweaty. 200 yards is a long way to run. Police are thinking the same thing as Mm. you. And police are confused like you are. This area, this exact barn, and supposedly this exact clutter had been searched when she had first gone missing. Or so they say. So they're thinking that maybe her killer abducted her, killed her, and then brought her to this barn at a later time after it had been searched originally. Mm. But this theory is a bit far-fetched since nobody would dare return to this area with this huge police and FBI presence. And evidence starts building to disprove this theory and instead support the idea that Marsha was killed in this spot and never moved from that day. Firstly, the way in which her blood is pooled in her body indicates that she has been in the same spot since her death. Additionally, they test the soil on her shoes, which indicates that she had walked to or near the garage voluntarily before her death, and she had not been dragged anywhere. Lastly, they conclude from the bugs and maggots on her body that enough generations are present to support the story that she has been decomposing in the same spot for 33 days, which is how much time has elapsed since the day that she went missing. The Trimble family is at church for Easter Sunday when Marsha's body is found, so they're pulled from church and given the heart-wrenching, devastating news of their daughter's death. They truly had been holding out hope that she was alive somewhere, and this news shatters their hearts. Although Charlie Trimble asks tons of questions about the murder of his daughter, he and Virginia do carefully choose not to see their daughter's body in person or in pictures. They want their last memory of Marcia to be her playing, laughing, drawing pictures, writing stories, and being the goofy nine-year-old that they know and love. One detail that is kept from the Trimbles is that so sadly, Marsha has also been sexually assaulted prior to her murder. This detail is held from her parents for four whole years. Wow. I don't know why. I didn't know they could hold that. The 70s may be a different time. Back then, they didn't speak so openly about things like this. And so maybe that's the reason why. I'm not sure. That's gross. Examination of Marsha's body concludes that Marsha's cause of death is strangulation. She had a broken hyoid bone, which indicates a very severe strangulation. You have to be strangled under 
intense pressure for that bone to break. Her body had actually not decomposed too badly during the 33 days she was missing because of the cool temperatures in February. She was found with vomit on her body. She was missing hair from her bloody scalp. Cookies were scattered around the ground near her body, but her cookie money was stolen, assumedly by her murderer. She was fully clothed, but like I said, she was sexually assaulted. Semen is found inside her body and on her clothes and samples taken by the police. This is a brutal, senseless, ruthless attack with a sexual motivation that stole a beautiful girl from this world. Because her cookie money was stolen, police believe this supports the idea of the killer being a teenager because an adult wouldn't have the need for just a few dollars. To her parents' knowledge, she only had $20 of cookie money on her. Additionally, besides the semen found inside her body, there was not a sign of penetration, leading police to believe that her attacker may have been a young teenager or a man who was not well endowed down south, if you know what I'm saying. There's no way they said that. They said that. So now Marsha has been found and a murder of a sweet, innocent nine-year-old girl has taken place. Police need to find who did this, and right off the bat, they think of a prime suspect that they think killed Marsha. And that is the local teenager, Jeffrey Womack, who had been seen with Marsha around the time when she disappeared. Remember, she had been at his house to try and sell cookies. Jeffrey was found with a condom in his pocket that night, shoes with FU written on them, and he didn't really have a solid alibi since the person who claimed to be with him that night turned out to be bowling without him. Jeffrey works at a restaurant as a busboy, and police try sending an undercover cop to the restaurant to befriend him and try to fish any suspicious information or evidence out of him. It does not work. They find nothing suspicious. Police also have him take a lie detector test, a polygraph test, asking if he harmed Marsha, and he says he never harmed her. Although he passes the two polygraph tests, police are still suspicious, but Jeffrey's parents finally get him a lawyer and don't allow police to interrogate him anymore. Of course, getting a lawyer just raised more suspicion for police because their view is that nobody innocent needs to get a lawyer. Which is not true. And if you ever get pulled over by the police or have to talk to the police, don't talk to them. Always get a lawyer. Always get a lawyer. No matter what. If you're the most innocent person on the planet Earth, still get a lawyer. Don't talk to the police. Anyways, police don't have much incriminating evidence against Jeffrey Womack, but they're still very confident that he killed Marsha. He's their number one suspect. Most importantly, the public is still rightfully freaked out by the murder, and they're also pressuring police to charge someone for her murder. So in 1980, five years after her murder, they arrest Jeffrey Womack and officially charge him for the murder of Marsha Trimble. The problems are that it seems they almost have tunnel vision from day one of her disappearance in 1975, and all of police's evidence is circumstantial and speculation at best. Marsha had been at Jeffrey's house briefly to try and sell cookies, and he was seen heavily sweating soon after she went missing. Keep in mind, it was February, so that's strange. He had a condom in his pocket. Keep in mind, Marcia was sexually assaulted. And police thought someone stealing her petty amount of cookie money was something that a teen would do, not an adult. The woman who was his alibi ended up bowling instead of being around him. Plus, they just thought he was a degenerate kid who smoked weed, had F.U. obscenities written on his shoes, and was having an affair with a 30-something-year-old woman that made him this sexual predator in their eyes. 
but there is no zero forensic evidence in their case against him. And in court, all of the things that I've listed are considered insufficient evidence when he goes. Plus, Jeffrey passed his polygraph tests, two of them. So Jeffrey Womack is released and the charges are dropped against him. Police are back to square one five years after Marsha's murder with no killer found or charged. The best they can do is collect DNA from every possible suspect and store it in evidence for a day that the samples could potentially be compared to the semen samples inside and or on Marsha at the crime scene. And from here, the case stays cold for months, for years, and for decades. And throughout that time, sure, maybe Jeffrey Womack is legally cleared, but the people of Nashville still treat him like he killed Marsha. No, I bet. His name is brought up in the news reports on anniversaries of her case. People gossip about him, distrust him, mistreat him, accuse him of being a killer and a sexual predator from the age of 15 and beyond for all of the decades that the case stays ice cold and unsolved. Over the years, different members of the police develop varying opinions on what they believe happened to Marsha Trimble. Some believe Marsha was sexually assaulted by not one, but up to three teenage boys. Some believe she was assaulted in one location and then later brought to the location where her body was found. Some people believe that some random teenage boy found Marsha walking along the road, decided to assault her because they never had had a sexual encounter previously and they maybe didn't plan to kill her, but ended up killing her because she screamed or drew attention to herself. And of course, many people still believed, even in the police force, that Jeffrey Womack was behind the murder of Marsha. But overall, it was the general consensus that Marsha Trimble's killer was a teen boy. Nashville Police Captain Mickey Miller speaks publicly about Marsha Trimble's case, saying that in the moment Marsha was killed, quote, Nashville lost its innocence. Our city has never been and never will be the same again. Every man, woman, and child knew that if something horrific could happen to that little girl, it could happen to anyone, end quote. Over 50% of the families that lived near the Trimbles move away in the following years after her murder because of the danger that lurked outside their doors. They didn't know who did it. Yeah. The Trimble family must live through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond without their sweet daughter growing with them. The loss of their daughter was a hole that could not be filled and caused really deep issues that couldn't be mended between Charlie and Virginia Trimble. Community members still accuse the couple of murdering their daughter and mail threatening letters to their home over the years. Jeez, digging the wound deeper. Like you lose your daughter and then people start sending you mail. I hope those people feel so guilty now. Gosh. The people who mailed hate letters to them. Charlie grows a disdain toward their own home and the memories of Marsha that haunt him. And after much heartbreak, Marsha's parents, Charlie and Virginia, divorce in September 1989 after a 27-year-long marriage and 14 years after their daughter's death. And so sadly, only three days after their divorce, Charlie passes away on September 11, 1989 after battling liver and lung cancer. And so he's buried in Olivet Cemetery directly next to Marsha, but he passed away never knowing who stole Marsha from this earth. That's a tough life. He never knew. Yep, it's a tough life. So years elapse as we progress into the new millennium, the 2000s, the age of DNA sequencing, 
At this point in time, DNA can be sequenced and compared to another specific person's DNA to search for a match. Since the day poor Marsha was assaulted and killed, police have been smart about collecting DNA evidence from every single person they consider even a potential suspect. And in the 2000s, they finally have the ability to sequence the DNA of the semen samples found on and in Marsha from all of those years ago and compare it to the DNA from the hundreds of people of interest that they collected DNA samples from over the years. And guys, police get zero matches. The killer's DNA does not match the DNA of a single one of the people they collected DNA from during their decades-long police investigation, including Jeffrey Womack. Hmm. This poor guy went through a lifetime of scrutiny and judgment to end up definitively not being the person who sexually assaulted and murdered nine-year-old Marsha. Wrong place, wrong time, and your whole life's ruined. Guy was just playing some basketball and ended up sweaty, and they put a whole murder on him. That's sad. And then, also sadly, police do not publicly announce that these people are innocent for a really long time. Hmm. But police don't lose hope yet. In December 2007... Two men in Davidson County Jail named Andrew Knapper and Sheldon Anter decide to snitch on their prior fellow inmate. They had spoken with their inmate friend named Jerome Barrett, who had confessed to them what seems like years ago that he killed Marsha Trimble in 1975. And this man, Jerome, didn't just confess once to his fellow inmates. He confessed this murder of Marsha Trimble four separate times in jail. So Jerome's jail friends finally snitch on him, as they should snitch on someone who's admitted to murdering a nine-year-old girl. This report makes its way to police, and police take a DNA sample from Jerome, who in 2007-2008 is out of jail and living in Memphis at the time that police hear this story. And police get a ping when they run his DNA. Ping. Got him. Please get a complete match. The probability of six trillion to one that the DNA belongs to Jerome Barrett. So there's a chance it's not. 33 years have gone by. Marsha's father died not knowing who killed his daughter, but her remaining family in the entire city of Nashville now has an answer. All thanks to the fact that Jerome ran his mouth and bragged about mm -hmm. his kill in prison. So this DNA that was found on Marsha matches Jerome Barrett, a 60-year-old man with a hefty, violent criminal record who was working in the Green Hills area at the time of Marsha's assault and murder and was arrested very soon after Marsha's murder for the murder of another person in Nashville, which I'll go into shortly. So he's 60 at the time of his arrest in 2008, meaning that he was in his 20s when he murdered Marsha in 1975. So, of course, Jerome Barrett is charged with the first-degree murder of Marsha Trimble in 2008. In police interviews, Barrett claims to have killed Marsha, but does not confess to her rape, although the DNA on her body matches his. His story is that he had had an altercation with a man that he knew, and after this altercation, Jerome was furious and went on a rampage through Nashville and, quote, killed four blue-eyed bitches, end quote in his rampage after having a fight with a friend. 
So let's talk about this killing rampage. Keep in mind, Marsha was killed on February 25th, 1975, but three weeks before her murder, Jerome Barrett murdered a young Vanderbilt University student named Sarah DePrez. Then on February 17th, 1975, he murdered another young woman who was a Belmont University student, and he was arrested for this murder in March while Marsha Trimble's body still hadn't been found yet. She had gone missing, but had not been found yet. So that's when he was arrested for the murder of the Belmont University student. So when Marsha's body was located, Jerome was already in jail and really off the police's radar. So now I've mentioned three people ruthlessly killed by him, but in his police interview, he claims to have killed a fourth, but I can't find where he has ever been officially connected to a specific fourth girl or woman. In addition to these three murders, Jerome Barrett had spent most of his life in prison. He first was arrested in 1974, released briefly to commit the murders in 1975, and then is jailed again from 1975 to 2002, where at some point while he was jailed, he was telling his fellow inmates about his murder of Marcia. So let's go back to court. Jerome Barrett is charged of the first degree murder of Marcia Trimble in 2008, but he ends up being found guilty by a grand jury of the second degree murder of nine-year-old Marcia Trimble. He is sentenced to 44 years in prison for her second degree murder, and Marcia's family, the investigators, the prosecutor, and really the whole city of Nashville feels the weight of the world lift off their shoulders as they finally find out who the monster is that killed little Marcia. He'll have a lot of fun in jail as a chomo. And he'll never get out. He'll die in there. Oh, yeah. What is still unclear, or at least not completely proven, is why Jerome was in the area near the Trimble's home, how she ended up at that decrepit garage without anybody seeing him. Nobody but Marsha and Jerome know the exact sequence of events from Marsha leaving her parents' home, speaking with friends, and then later ending up murdered by a garage 200 yards away from her home. And I think I've oscillated between calling in a garage and a barn in this episode. It is an old garage, by the way. Jerome never confessed these details to police. So some police theorized this. So Jerome had assaulted a woman on Fairfax Lane in Nashville before Marsha Trimble was murdered. He snuck up, grabbed this woman while she was walking into her home, tried to assault her, saying that he would kill her if she made a noise. She still fought back though, and she got a really good look at his face while she was doing this. And she fought him off of her and survived, although she was slashed three times in her neck with a knife and had to spend quite a while in the hospital after this attack. We love a fighter. We do love a fighter. And she caught his face, which is amazing. This woman lived on Fairfax Lane, but her parents lived right next to the Trimble home. So police believe maybe he was upset that the woman escaped him and was either trying to find her at her parents' house or vengefully hurt her family. He could have easily gotten her information, like just her name from her mail in the mailbox at her home, and her last name in the telephone book showed only one address. And I'm not sure what her name is, but I imagine that her name may be rare. But her last name showed one address, which was her parents' house, right next to the Trimbles. So if he knew her name, looked up where she lived, this would lead him right next to the Trimbles' home in Green Hills, where little Marsha Trimble 
was walking down the road one day and maybe just provided an opportunity for him to commit an assault that he maybe was already seeking to commit while in the area just to this other woman's family instead. The judge in this case thought that this was a bit far-fetched, but sounds like a pretty decent theory to me, but we'll never really know. Yeah. And that's where I'll end this case. So rest in peace to sweet Marsha Trimble. I am so happy your murder is solved. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Ghastly, and we will keep releasing new episodes for y'all on Thursdays, and we'll always keep it spooky season for you. Bye. Later. Later.